All right. Hello, Christ community. Uh, so glad all of you are here. Greetings to our West Campus and our traditions venue, as well as our friends in LaSalle. Uh, really glad that you're joining us. It is so fun to see what God is doing here in our church. If you missed last weekend, which was our one year, um, we celebrate our one year anniversary of our For the City and Beyond vision. I encourage you, go online or on the app, on our app, and watch the, the message. We also put together a video um, at the start of that message. And we're just so excited. I'm so excited about what God has in store for our church and the growing impact that we get to have in changing people's stories in our life and in our city and in our world. So thank you uh, for being a vital part of what God is doing here. So today we are starting a new teaching series. Now, now don't worry, we're not leaving the book of Luke. Um, I've heard so many positive comments about um, our time in the book of Luke. So we're not changing that, but we are fast forwarding to chapters 22 to 24 for a bit. And then we're going to come back to where we left off in chapter eight at the end of April. and We'll continue on from there. So why are we jumping forward? Well, about a month ago, as I was thinking and praying about our teaching plan for the next few months, I realized that one of the things that we are often guilty of in our flavor of church is this tendency to spend only one weekend focusing on the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? We do Good Friday and we do Easter. But in the history of the church, the entire season leading up to Easter is significant. It's often referred to as Lent, which is a 40-day period of time in which followers of Jesus can focus our hearts more intentionally upon repentance and upon Jesus' work on the cross. And so I thought it would be spiritually significant for us as a church to do a, a similar thing during this season, to spend these weeks looking at Luke's account of the events leading up to the crucifixion um, and, and letting this be a season of deeper reflection on the work of Christ on the cross for us. And so today marks the beginning of an experience of Lent for our church. Now, I realize some of you already know this, that we've already missed the 40-day mark, um, but we're close. Okay, we're close. Uh, we are actually 36 days from Easter, which gives us a five-week season to focus our hearts more intentionally on our Savior. And one of the aspects of Lent that you're, I'm sure you're aware of is, is fasting, this idea of fasting from something that's important to us during this season as a way of focusing on the suffering of Christ and directing our hearts more fully on the Lord. And so that may be something, I just want to throw it out there, that may be something that God is prompting you to do um, and laying on your heart to do and beginning today or, or tomorrow um, just in this season. If, you, if God's prompting you to do that, that would be great. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, uh, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> now in the beginning chapters of Luke, Luke, Jesus was ministering in the northern region of Israel, the, the northern region, which is known as Galilee. But now, by now in the book, he has made his way to Jerusalem in the southern part, which is the spiritual epicenter for the Jewish people. Jerusalem was the location of the temple and all the celebrations and all the rituals. And, and, and for Jesus' entire ministry, <clears throat> the religious leaders have been questioning him and opposing him and speaking against him. And now he is in their backyard. Yard. So we can anticipate some increased intensity, which is exactly what happens in chapter 22. But it is more than just a theological conflict. 
What we see in chapter 22 is the unfolding of two very different and competing plans for humanity. One is from Satan and the other is from God. And what's fascinating in this passage is how in this passage we see these, pan, these two plans begin to collide which is actually a picture of how our lives work. In a very real sense, every, every day of our lives is a, is, a, is, a, is a picture of this collision. Really, every day of our lives is a picture of this collision, this battle. Whether we're aware of it or not, we are constantly choosing between these two plans. And the impact of our choices is incredibly significant, as we're going to see. So I want us to start, we're going to start by looking at Satan's plan for humanity, Satan's plan for humanity. Let me read beginning in verse one of Luke 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the 12. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Okay, so Luke clearly lets us know who is at the center of this particular plan, and that being is Satan. Luke tells us that Satan entered Judas and moved him to betray Jesus. So who is this Satan? You know, some in our society view him in kind of a comical you know, fashion, a guy dressed up, dressed in, you know, red with pitchforks or whatever. Um, others kind of view him as a, as a personification of evil. But, but the Bible presents a different perspective. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So, According to Jesus, Satan is a real being. He is a very powerful, angelic being who at one time was on God's side, but because of his pride and his quest for power, he chose to rebel against God, and he was kicked out of heaven in some way. That's what Jesus is describing. We just read, he was kicked out of heaven in some way. And so he began, at that moment, he began to try and establish his rule here on earth. And Satan has one primary objective. He has one primary passion, to rob God of glory. He wants to hinder God's loving purposes on earth. Why? Because he wants the glory. He wants the worship. He wants to be the one in power. So the entire Bible is this picture of Satan working to thwart God's purposes. It started all the way back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. He got them to rebel against their loving creator. And, 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 and that one move, that one decision by them gave Satan tons of opportunity and material to work with. And he's been working with that ever since, with humanity in that way ever since. So it's no surprise, that was Genesis 3, it's no surprise that when Jesus comes on the scene, Satan starts showing up and trying to derail Jesus' mission. It began in Luke 3 um, when Satan shows up and, and just before Jesus goes public, Satan shows up and he, and he, attempts, to, he, he attempts to tempt Jesus. 
um, he tempts Jesus to bow down and, and worship him, but Jesus refused. And then once Jesus begins his public ministry, demons often start showing up whenever Jesus is teaching just to disrupt things. So, so Satan is totally focused on opposing the advancement of God's purposes, right? Not only in Jesus, but in us, in us as well. So what is Satan's strategy to, to, to try and thwart God's plans? Well, he uses two tools as his primary method, and we see hints of both of them here in this passage. One of his tools is fear. Fear. We read in verse 2 that these religious leaders were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. See, Satan loves to sow fear in our hearts because fear causes us to take action that are opposed to God's will. Fear is the opposite of faith. These religious leaders were afraid of how, you know, many people were following Jesus. They were getting jealous, right? They were jealous of how Jesus' influence was growing. They were afraid of what might happen if that would continue. And so they, because of their fear, they were looking for a way to stop Jesus' ministry. And in doing so, they played right into Satan's hands. Because of their fear, they looked to stop Jesus' ministry, and they played right into Satan's hands. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. Same thing happens in our lives as well. Fear will keep us from all sorts of things that God may be asking us to do. I can't go on that mission trip because I'm afraid of flying. I can't volunteer in youth ministry because I'm afraid the kids won't like me. I can't lead an e-group because I'm afraid, you know, I'll, I'll fail. See, whatever the fear is, if Satan can stir fear in our hearts, he can hinder us from wholeheartedly pursuing God's will. So fear is one of his tactics, his strategies. A second primary strategy or tactic of Satan is deception. Fear and deception. It's deception. He whispers lies to us. And those lies influence our behavior if we believe them, right? They influence our behavior when we believe them. And that seems to be what's going on here with Judas. Think about this. I mean, Judas had spent almost three years with Jesus. He had seen him do miracles. He had seen him cast out demons. He had witnessed Jesus' acts of kindness and love. He had heard Jesus teaching. Not only that, he, and we're going to look at this when we get back to Luke chapter 9 and, nine and 10, he actually participated in ministry. He participated with the other disciples in ministry. But, but here's the deal. His heart was never truly surrendered to Jesus, which is what made him very vulnerable to Satan's influence and deception. Now, Luke's language here is pretty strong. Luke says that Satan entered Judas. Now, here's, how, here's my understanding of that. There was a huge portal in Judas's heart that allowed himself to be inhabited by Satan, and that portal was open through deception. That portal was open through deception. Now, I, I don't think this portal was opened overnight. Judas was doing fine. Then one night he said, eh, I'm just going to open my heart. To, you know, I don't think that's what, the way it happened. It's not the way it happens in our lives. It's little decision after little decision after little decision. There was a pattern of behavior in, in Judas that was evident over time, a pattern that was rooted in greed. Now, we don't find this out 
right here in this passage in Luke, but we do get this information in John chapter 12, where John tells us that Judas was the keeper of the money bag. And remember when, when uh, the woman was, uh, the woman in John 12, she was, you may not remember, but the, in this passage, this woman is anointing Jesus' feet with, with perfume. It was very expensive perfume. And Judas is complaining because that money could have been spent on the poor, right? That was his, his you know, the, why he was bothered by this. But John makes the comment, that's not really what's going on here. Judas kept the money bag and all the disciples knew that he helped himself to the money. John calls him a thief. That's what was going on in Judas's life over a period of time. The disciples knew it. This was going on over a period of time. He was deceived by a love for money. He was deceived by greed. It's, it's no surprise that he got paid he got paid well to betray Jesus. So the deception of greed had taken hold in Judas's life, which made him an easy target for Satan's influence. But, but I want to be very, very clear here. I want to be very clear on this. Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. No one made him do this. Satan didn't make him do this. He freely chose. He chose to do this, but that choice was the result of lots of lies, believing lots of lies over a period of time that Satan had sown in his heart. Judas had believed these lies, and this was the end result of his deception. Now, now we look at Judas, we typically look at Judas, and we think, how could he have done that? How could he do something so destructive. But let's be honest, how often do we freely choose? How often have we freely chosen to do something totally destructive to ourselves or to other people, all because we believed the enemy's lie, that this moment of pleasure is going to be worth it. No one's going to find out that we deserve this. I mean, how many of us have done that same thing just be because we believe the enemy's lies? So what is clear in this passage is that Satan has a plan. It's to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to thwart and hinder God's purposes in your life and in my life. And he uses fear and deception as his primary ways of trying to accomplish his purpose. So let's just stop right here for just a moment and let me just ask, where is this happening in your life for my life right now? Where is this happening in our lives right now? Where are we allowing fear and deception to actually thwart and hinder God's purposes in our lives. I mean, Satan is really good at what he does. And he accomplishes a lot of destruction as a result. <clears throat> so that's his plan for humanity. That's the plan of Satan. Well, thankfully... There's another plan, um, and that is God's plan for humanity. It is the total opposite of Satan's plan. It is a plan to bring life and to bring wholeness and, and joy. So here, let's, let's start reading about this plan, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us as we eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they ask. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. 
They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Okay, while Satan is doing his low-life stuff, um, God is orchestrating his own plan, which had actually begun centuries earlier in the Jewish celebration known as Passover, which is exactly what is going on in Jerusalem at this time, on this very day. So, a little historical background. This is very important. It's going to all make sense and help us understand what's happening here. For 430 years, the Israelites had suffered as slaves in Egypt. They were treated horribly by the Egyptians. We're talking forced labor, and it got worse and worse. They would remove the straw, make them make bricks with less straw and all these things. God saw their plight, and he sent them a leader to rescue them, a guy named Moses, who approached Pharaoh and told him, told Pharaoh to let God's people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so God sent multiple plagues onto the people of Egypt, turning the Nile River into blood and sending frogs and gnats and flies and, and, and hail, but nothing would convince Pharaoh to let God's people go and release them from their slavery. So God had one final plague in store, an angel of death that would move throughout the entire region, including where the Israelites lived. This angel of death, as it passed through these, 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 these streets and these homes and all that, it would, it would kill every firstborn male child. So how would, if this is going on in this whole region, how would the people of God be protected from this angel of death? Well, God told his people how. Each family was to take a lamb without blemish or defect. They were to care for this lamb for two weeks and then they were to slaughter it. And they were to take the blood of this innocent lamb and they were to place this, they were to sort of paint it on the door frame of their house. Take the blood of the lamb, put it on the door frame of their house. So here's what God says he will do on that night. Exodus chapter 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So that's exactly what happened. <clears throat> that night, the angel of death went through Egypt and killed every firstborn son. But when it came to a house that had the blood of, the la of a lamb on, a, on the doorpost, it passed over that house. Thus the name Passover. Notice, it wasn't the innocence of the people that protected them. The angel didn't skip that house, oh, because they're such good people. Or, oh, no, they're Israelites. I'm just going to skip the house because they're Israelites. No, 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 no. The only thing, the only thing that protected them from God's judgment was the blood of a slain lamb. That plague actually resulted in Pharaoh's own son dying, and he finally relented, and he said, get out of here. He told the people to go. So in a very real sense, in a very real sense, their freedom, the Israelites' freedom was a direct result of this Passover experience. Now, due to the significance of this, 
God told his people right away when it happened, God told his people, he wanted them to commemorate this every year at the same time, which they did. So this Passover celebration, it involved, because of what happened, that it involved eating lamb and unleavened bread and some other foods, all of which were kind of symbolic, all of which reminded them of how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So that is what is being celebrated in Jerusalem in this passage. In every Jewish home, each family is celebrating the Passover, something they had done for centuries. There was an entire ceremony that each family would do. There was an entire ceremony each family would do through, through the meal, and, and which, which included the children asking questions and the father giving explanations, retelling the story, all for the purpose of remembering the salvation that God had accomplished on their behalf. It's all about remembering what had happened in Exodus and the salvation he had accomplished on their behalf. This is the meal that Jesus sends Peter and John to go prepare for them. Now, Jesus had already arranged a room. It's clear he'd already arranged a room for this to happen. So Peter and John go into the city. They see this, this man they're supposed to find. He directs them to the room. They go and prepare the Passover meal with the lamb and the unleavened bread. Verse 14, when the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so the food has been prepared. The wine, which is also a part of the celebration meal, is ready. And at that moment, Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. The language he uses here is emphatic. I have longed for this. Now, what, what, why, why is he longing for this moment? Here's what I, I think. It's because he's going to unveil it's because of what he's going to unveil to them during this Passover meal. He is going to unveil God's incredible plan that is now being fulfilled in a dramatic way. So Jesus begins, Luke tells us here, Jesus begins by taking a cup of wine and handing it to the disciples. Now, this initial cup of wine marked the beginning of the Passover meal. And it symbol, each, each cup of wine, there were four total, each cup of wine symbolized something significant. This cup symbolized sanctification. All the Jews knew this. It symbolized sanctification. God setting his people apart, setting them apart for his holy and good purposes. So that wine was passed around. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now these words had to be absolutely staggering for the disciples to hear. Because in every other Passover meal the disciples had ever experienced throughout their entire lives, from, from children on up, every other Passover meal they had experienced, the script was laid out. It was the same. The script was the same. A child, one of the children would ask, Father, why is this night different than all other nights? And the father would respond with, with the same explanation, telling the story of the Exodus. But Jesus, 
breaks from the script. He does what is unheard of. He breaks from this centuries-old script. It was unheard of. Instead of the usual explanation about unleavened bread, this is what Jesus says. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what, what is Jesus saying? He is saying that he is the one to whom this whole celebration of Passover points. In other words, he is the Passover lamb. Now, why did Jesus take bread and say this? Why didn't he take a piece of lamb and say, this is my body? Well, maybe he knew how difficult it would be for us to take communion if we had to cook lamb every time. That could have been it. It could have been logistical. Um, But I think there's more going on here. I think it's because Jesus is the lamb, the final lamb. We don't have to sacrifice lamb anymore to atone for our sins. He is the final sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb who gave his life for us. So the bread symbolically moves us away from this idea of of needing sacrifices. And it focuses us on his body that was given for us. Now, as if that wasn't significant enough in terms of exploding the disciples' theology and all of that, theological categories, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus then adds another dimension to this during the Passover meal. Look at verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Now, this cup is most likely the third cup out of the four, okay? We had the first cup, and then there was a meal. Um, He broke the bread, there was a meal, and then he took this this cup. So there was a second cup somewhere in there. This is most likely the third cup. And the reason I say that is because of what it symbolizes. I think this is all strategic in what Jesus is saying here. The third cup in the Passover celebration symbolizes redemption, God's promise to redeem his people. Now, we don't really use the word redeem very much um, in our society unless we're redeeming coupons or whatever. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, redemption is huge. Redemption spoke of freedom. See, a slave could be redeemed. They could be redeemed if someone came and paid the price for him or her. They would redeem them. They would pay the price and that slave would be freed. It would be, he or she would be redeemed. Their freedom would be purchased. That's what redemption means. So this, this third cup symbolized the freedom that God provided for his people in the book of Exodus. That's what it represents. He set them free. But now Jesus takes this cup. He takes this to a whole new level by taking hold of this cup of redemption and saying this cup represents, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, most every Jew, every Jew, when they heard Jesus say that, most every Jew would immediately know the significance of this phrase, new covenant, new covenant, because this phrase is only used one time in the entire Old Testament. New covenant was only used one time in the entire Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, which is a passage they were no doubt familiar with. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. In chapter 31 of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus even came on the scene. Chapter 31, God promises that there will be a new covenant that he makes with his people in the future. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. 
it's, uh, it's sort of like a contract, but it's stronger than that, okay? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's the basis for a relationship. And one thing that you see in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you realize this is how God relates with us, his people. He always relates to us based on covenant, based on an established agreement, a covenant. And he established covenants with his, with his people. So, so what is going to be the basis of this new covenant? And how is it different than the old covenant? Well, look at what Jeremiah says. This is an amazing passage. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Okay, so we're learning here about the old covenant first. Notice the old covenant. What was the old covenant based on? It was based on the law. It was based upon God's people obeying his commands. So after the Exodus, Moses receives the Ten Commandments and all the, the laws, and, and the, the covenant then was based upon them obeying these commandments to be holy just as God is holy. Now the, it's a great covenant. The only problem with this covenant is us, right? That's, we're the problem because we don't obey very well. We don't obey very well. The people just kept breaking God's commandments, even though, as he says here, I was a husband to them. I, I, I love them. I, I long for a relationship, but, but, but the old covenant didn't work because of our sinfulness. It wasn't about God's love. It was our sinfulness that was the problem. So how will the new covenant be any different? Well, look at Jeremiah 31, the next verse, verse 33. This is the covenant. Now we're talking new. This is the covenant I will make. He's speaking into the future. I, one day I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now this is amazing. <clears throat> Do you see how different this new covenant is from the old one? The old one was based on our obedience, on our ability to follow God and to keep his commandments. But notice in this new covenant, notice who is the responsible party in the new covenant. God says, I will put my law in their minds. I will be their God. I will forgive their sins. See, since we couldn't keep our end of the bargain in the old covenant, God is taking full responsibility in the new one. He is the one doing all the heavy lifting. He's the one doing all the work. Now notice what this new covenant includes. This, I mean, this is where the whole sermon series is on, but this passage is so amazing. But I'm going to just briefly mention three things in this new covenant. First of all, it includes God giving us a new heart. This is so important. God says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write my law on their hearts. See, this new covenant is not about following this external list of rules, trying hard to follow this external list of rules. No, 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 no. This is about a change of heart, which means we actually want to obey. <laughs> we want to follow rather than out of fear or obligations. Totally new heart. 
The second thing in this new covenant, it's about a personal relationship with God. Look again at verse 33. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors say, or, or, or say to one another, know the Lord. In other words, come on, come on, come on. Get to know the Lord. No, no, no. No one's going to say that anymore because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will all know me, not just the religious leaders, not just the important people who know their Bible or whatever. No, they, in this new covenant, they will all know me personally, God says. I will be their God. They will know me. And the third amazing part of this new covenant is forgiveness. God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, in this new covenant, his people will experience forgiveness, complete forgiveness. He won't hold our sins over us. He will remember them no more. No more. <laughs> complete forgiveness. I mean, what a glorious covenant this is describing in, John, in Jeremiah 31, one that is not based upon our effort, it's not based upon our ability, it's not based upon our holiness, but it is totally based upon God giving us a new heart, God giving us a new relationship with him, God giving us forgiveness. See, all of that is what was promised in the Old Testament. And it's amazing, but you got to wonder, if you're a Jew there in this kind of situation after that, you're wondering how on earth could something like that happen? How on earth could something like that be realized? All the Jewish people knew was the law. That was it. The law, God's commands, that's all they knew. So how, how could this even be accomplished, a covenant like this? What could possibly establish a new covenant that is dependent not upon our behavior? It's dependent upon something else entirely. Well, Jesus took the cup, the cup of redemption. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus' blood is the basis for this new covenant. The, the very next day, as part of God's purposes, the perfect lamb of God, that's what John the Baptist called him, the lamb of God, the perfect lamb of God, Jesus, the son of God would be slain on a cross. So when anyone takes that blood and places it on the doorpost of their lives, guess what happens? God's judgment, which we all deserve, his judgment passes over them. Not because of our obedience, not because we're good people and we go to church and we're nice to our neighbors. No, 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 no. <laughs> it is only because of Jesus' blood. His work on the cross for us. His sacrificial death. On this Passover evening, <laughs> in the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus was revealing that he is the one. He is the one who is going to make this new covenant happen. God's long-term plan for humanity is about to enter into a whole new dimension. What, what was begun centuries earlier in, in Exodus at Passover is now fully realized in Jesus, our Redeemer. Fully realized. Jesus sets us free 
from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. He lives in us, giving us a new personal relationship with God. It, it is a glorious plan that God has in mind for humanity to be his sons and daughters, to live in the joy of forgiveness and the fullness of his power. That's what Jesus offers us. That's what God desires for you and for me. It is to live in the fullness of this new covenant. So if, if you have not received Jesus, if you've not opened your heart and placed your trust in him, you, you have not yet entered into this new covenant. You're living in the old covenant. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a few minutes to do that at the end of this message. But before we go there, there, there's a really important question here for all of us. All of us who have already entered into this new covenant. We've placed our faith in Jesus. We've placed our trust in him. There's a, here's the question that is so important. Are you and I living in the fullness of the new covenant? Are, are, are we living in the fullness of the new covenant? Because folks, this is not automatic. This is not automatic just because you're a Christian and you know the Bible. This is not automatic. It is a choice we make and it is a choice we continue to make. See, as I mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier in this passage, there, there are two plans and these two plans describe your and my reality every day. These two plans describe our reality every day. We have a choice every day, every moment of every day. We have a choice between these two plans. We can choose to live in fear and deception and let our lives experience the destruction that Satan wants to bring, or we can choose to live in the reality of the new covenant, the work of Jesus that has already been done for us. So let me get really practical. Let's give a practical example here. I'm guessing that every one of us struggles in some area of sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's unforgiveness. But we, we all struggle with some area of sin. When we give into that sin again, what happens? We feel horrible, right? We feel horrible. We beat ourselves up. We tell ourselves God couldn't love us, you know, we're a hopeless cause. And we do, we do this deep dive into this place of shame. But you see, that's an old covenant response. When we go to shame, that's an old covenant response. We're living in the old covenant when we do that. We're living under the old covenant when we do that. I mean, repentance, repentance is, is, is important, but repentance that leads back to shame is not genuine repentance. Repentance that leads us back to shame is not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance leads us back to the new covenant. Genuine repentance leads us to the new covenant. It leads us to the truth that God loves us and he will never stop loving us. It leads us to the truth that God forgives us and he doesn't even remember our sins. It leads us to the truth that he lives in us and he will never abandon us. He will never leave us. And he lives in us. His power lives in us through his Holy Spirit. And he wants to help us walk in holiness. That's the new covenant that we're invited to live in every moment of every day. So here's the, here's the question. Which plan are we going to walk in? Are we going to walk in Satan's plan, believing lies and carrying shame and embracing fear? Or are we going to walk in the new covenant 
the one that Jesus already paid for in total. He already paid for with his blood poured out on the cross. Walking in his joy and his love and his life and his power. That's the choice we have every moment of every day. That's the choice all of us have every moment of every day. Satan is a jerk. God is amazing. Which plan do we want to follow? Which plan do we want to follow? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this amazing plan that you have been orchestrating for centuries. And we have the privilege of seeing it, how it unfolds and comes to completion and fulfillment in Jesus. Thank you for this plan. Because we know Satan is a jerk. He wants to destroy our lives. He wants to lie and steal and destroy all that you want to do. But you are bigger and you are an amazing God with an amazing plan. We're so grateful. We want to be a part of that plan. So as I mentioned a moment ago, I want to give a couple of invitations here. First of all, I want to give an invitation for those of you who are not, you have never entered into the new covenant. See, if your Christianity has been about you trying to be a good person and going to church and trying to be, you know, nice and follow the golden rule and you're sincerely, you know, about these things and you're hoping that your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds, you're trusting in your own effort. You're trying to be your own savior. That's the old covenant. doesn't work. Jesus is offering you a new covenant where he does all the heavy lifting. You just receive his life and his forgiveness. And so if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. Just pray along with me in the silence of your heart if you want to enter into a relationship with Jesus based on the new covenant. So pray with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are whole. And I'm not. I've done my own thing. I do my own thing. I'm a sinner. I've gone my own way. I don't follow. I don't obey very well. And I admit that. And I realize that my sin separates me from you. You're holy and I'm not. It separates me from you, but I don't want to be separated from you. And I, I acknowledge I've been trying in an old covenant mindset to maybe work my way to you, to try to make myself a better person and hopefully my good deeds will outweigh my bad and you'll be able to say, ah, come on in, it's good enough. But I realize that doesn't work. So even though there's nothing I could do to get to your holiness, you came to me, you sent your son Jesus to come to earth, to live a perfect life, a perfect lamb. And then Jesus, you chose, you voluntarily chose to pay for my sin, sacrificing your life for me. Thank you. I choose to place my trust in you, Jesus. I bring you my sin and my failure and my faults and questions and doubts. I just bring it all to you and I place it all on your shoulders. And right now I choose and I ask to receive you. I want to receive you to come live in me through the presence of your spirit forgive my sin, all of it, so that you remember it no more. 
Give me a new heart. Change me from the inside out through the power of your love. And help me grow in this relationship, this love relationship that will never change. I will never, it's, it's mine forever. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in this incredible relationship they have now with you, Jesus. It's all dependent upon your work. Thank you for being such an amazing Savior. And if that's you, if you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to tell someone. Tell someone before you leave church today. Just let them know. Maybe one of the prayer people, just let them know. Or a friend, just let them know the decision that you made, this relationship you've entered into. Now for the rest of us here, and maybe even those who just prayed to receive Christ, here's the prayerful question. What, What plan are we embracing? Where is Satan influencing us through fear or deception? Where is he robbing us of joy and life? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see where that's happening? And we pray that your truth would come to these places and this the reality of the new covenant. We would embrace the truth of the new covenant. We would walk in that truth that we are yours. We are loved. We are beloved sons and daughters. We are forgiven. That you live in us. That we know you personally. So I pray that we would live more and more in the reality of the new covenant. And God, for those here who are just caught in a cycle of shame and sin and shame and all that, I pray, God, that our repentance would be genuine and it would point us not to shame. Our repentance would point us again to the new covenant, to choose to live in the new covenant. I pray for that, God. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being an amazing Savior, being, for being our Passover lamb, our final sacrifice. And God, we consider it a privilege in just a moment to do what the church has been doing for centuries since that evening where we have the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper. When you took the bread and said, this, is, this represents my body given for you. I'm the Passover lamb. And then you took the cup and you said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you, poured out for you. And we are so thankful. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper in this service, a little bit, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that that's what would be on our hearts. The reality of this new covenant that we can walk in, that you purchased for us. So stir it up in us, God, as we partake, as we ingest these elements, stir up these realities, these spiritual realities in our souls and our lives that we would walk in and live in this new covenant that you purchased for us. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We love you.